0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Since 1965, the Bay Area Rescue Mission, of course, they are a group of people that have known what homelessness looks like and have taken important steps to address it. Ron Hall knows what homelessness looks like and the impact that it can have on an individual. Ron, tell us about your first encounter then with Denver Moore.
2: Well, um, after the first day when he threatened to kill everybody in the room and then the security guards dragged him out of there, at the insistence of my wife, Debbie, uh, she asked me every morning before I would go to my art gallery uh, or to my ranch, I was kind of dividing my time between the two of them, uh, she would ask me to go take a drive through the inner city and just see if I couldn't get him in my car to uh, find out what his story is or was and, and find out if to if that story and, and, and his wisdom, you know, really matched up with her literal dream that she believed was from God. But and so I did. I uh, every morning I would take a drive right in the inner city, and usually I would see him because he lived by a dumpster uh, near the mission, uh, near, near the homeless mission, which is a rescue mission uh, just like the one in the Bay Area. And um, and but he would see my car or my truck pull in, and he would take off back in the woods, what they call the hobo jungle. And, uh, so I would report that I had seen him. And, uh, but anyway, it took me five months to get him in my car. And, uh, that's a long story. If you read the book, same kind of different as me, you would know it's a roller coaster ride that ended up with him in my car one morning. And, uh, so we went to get some breakfast and I found out that he had grown up on a plantation in Louisiana in the late thirties and, uh, through the, through the 1940s and, and, uh, when he was 16 years old, uh, he was roped and dragged by the Ku Klux Klan for helping a white woman change a flat tire on the plantation. And on that day, uh, the Klan extracted a promise from him that he would never again uh, look a white person in the eye or, or ever speak to a white woman. And, uh, and he had he was 62 years old when I met him, and he had been out of prison at that point for 25 years and he was a very very uh, damaged psychologically uh, uh very damaged man and uh, and he spoke to no one didn't talk to anybody uh he was just a, a loner and uh, and what people considered crazy except uh, he was also an enforcer of of uh if anyone else tried to beat up someone that was uh, weaker than them, uh, he would extract justice with his baseball bat on him. So he was he was considered crazy, but he was also schizophrenic. So, but uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, when I get him in the car. You know, he asked me, he says, "What is it you want from me?" And I said, "Hey, man, I just want to be your friend." And he looked at me with this incredulous look, and he said, "You want to be my friend?" And I said, "That's it." And uh, you know, I was just actually lying to him at that point because I was just doing that to please my wife Debbie to, to you know, fulfill this promise I'd made to her but uh, when he said he would think about it, I'll tell you, it just came all over me. I thought, hey, buddy, you look a gift horse in the mouth because you don't know who I am and how rich I am and what I can do for you. I can get you clothes, a car, apartment. I can even buy you a house or anything that you want. And you're just kind of a, you, an idiot, I would think, to not want to be my friend and just jump all, all over this opportunity. But I was, I was so arrogant, Craig. I couldn't believe he had anything to offer me in a friendship. But if he behaved himself... Uh, that I would bless him, uh, with enough things to, uh, make it worth his while to be my friends.
1: Of course, the absolute irony behind all of this is, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot line of the book nor the movie, and again the movie is now available in theaters nationwide, same kind of different as me, but the the intention here to follow through on your promise to your wife, and I'm sure there was a design both from the viewpoint of yourself and Debbie that the two of you were going to minister to this gentleman and, and hopefully give to him to help, help him in any way that god would leave you to and yet in the end it seems like there was uh, there was a lot of giving going on and a lot of it was coming from him actually
2: well it was because uh you know about two weeks later after that breakfast meeting i saw him taking trash out of a dumpster feeding the wild animals on the street and and he got him i asked him to go get some coffee with me so we go to starbucks and we're sitting there and He says, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? He said, well, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, "Uh, well, I sure did. So what do you think about that? He said, well, there's something I heard about white folks that really bothers me. And it's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, you know, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I'm I'm an art dealer and a cowboy but uh, i don't even own a rod and reel or a tackle box so i don't know if i can answer your question he said oh i bet you can and so i said okay what is it he said well i heard when white folks go fishing they do this thing they call catch and release and i just started laughing and i said well Denver, of course they do it's a sport you don't get it he said no sir i sure don't get it he said because back on the plantation we'd go out in the morning we'd dig us a can full of worms cut us a cane pole sit on the riverbank, when we got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught, and we'd take it back to the plantation and share it with all the folks. And he said, so it occurred to me, if you're just a white man fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. Wow.
1: Boy, there's wisdom.
2: Uh, There's wisdom. That's when my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of a poor man who was wise because that was singly the most wise thing I'd ever heard on friendship. And uh, you know, I knew if I ever heard from God it was at that moment. I said I had to take a chance and I said, Okay, Ben Bro, I'll be your friend And uh and we began this life changing friendship where he became my professor. I was his very eager student. In fact, Craig one of the first days I was sitting with him on the curb of uh by the dumpster and I was entering his classroom I guess <laughs> as the cars and trucks were passing by. And uh, he asked me, he said, are you one of them Christians? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, can you tell me why all you Christians worship one homeless man on Sunday and turn your back on the first one you see on Monday? And I said, no, Denver, I can't. I He said, Mr. Ron, you never know whose eyes God is watching you out of. And he said, it ain't gonna be your preacher or your Sunday school teacher. He said, it might be a fellow that looks like me. He said, now it ain't me, but it might be a fellow that looks just like me, and God's just checking you out to see uh, what kind of person you are. He said, you know, uh, all you folks think that the homeless is a problem? He said, but let me tell you, God sees it as an opportunity for the faithful to show the love of Christ.
1: You know, Ron, I've been involved with ministry to the homeless here in the Bay Area for many, many years. And that is the first time I've heard that statement in such a way that I think would cause all of us to pause. That we worship a homeless man on Sunday and then turn our backs on the first one we see on Monday. Wow. I mean, not only the depth of how profound that is, but how close to home, I think, that cuts for so many of us.
2: Yeah. You know, he told me, he looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, well, whether we're rich, and he was pointing right at me, and then he pointed back at himself, and he said, whether we're rich, or whether we's poor, or something in between. He said, this earth ain't no final resting place. He said, so in a way, we all homeless, just working our way home.
3: Hmm.
1: The title of the book is actually something that uh, Denver came up with. It, isn't it?
2: Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. He sure did. He was uh, speaking at Debbie's uh, memorial service. Um, it was. Uh, he he actually told me five months into our friendship. He said, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless in Fort Worth, Texas, she has become precious to God. He said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside, something bad getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. And uh, three days later, she was diagnosed with cancer and given only three to five months to live. But the good news is she, she lived 19 months. But during this 19 months, the man that I thought had nothing to offer me in a friendship, stayed on his knees all night long talking and praying to God and he would knock on our door the next morning and bring us a fresh revelant message that he heard from God in the night. I'll tell you, I used to marvel at how God chose the homeless most dangerous man on the streets of Fort Worth to be the one who encouraged us the very most during the darkest 19 months of our lives.
1: And isn't it true, Ron, that you just simply have no idea? I mean, even for those of us that look at the homeless situation and and wish to give and make a difference and volunteer and donate and do all that we that we do, at the end of the day, I think largely we think that we are the ones doing the ministering, not realizing that God in the bigger picture that he has about foot in his greater grander design that is far bigger and larger than any of us will ever be able to comprehend that at the end of the day there's a whole lot of ministry going on is just not always in the direction that we think it's going
2: exactly and a lot of people that don't know this story or haven't seen the movie or haven't read the book Think it's a white savior that I went in and saved this African American man, and there could be nothing farther from the truth than that. He saved me from myself. He he taught me things I could never possibly learn even from uh, even from the Bible. You know, I just he taught me pra- in practical ways how God works in mysterious ways. And, uh, and he saved my family. He saved my marriage. He saved my uh, relationship with my father. And all of these things, he led my father to Christ, my racist father that hated him. He ended up with me leading him to Christ when he was 90 years old.
1: And the man who grew up and was trained, we'll say it that way, was trained to hate white people, in the end, God... ...used to do the greatest ministry to the very object of his hatred and anger. And we're reminded in Scripture how God uses the things of this world to confound the wise. It is a compelling story. It is one that will set you back on your heels. And one that I would encourage you not only to read, but now go see... It's called Same Kind of Different As Me. It's published by Thomas Nelson. Again, longtime New York Times best-selling book by authors Ron Hall and a co-authored, of course, by Denver Moore. Now the story on the big screen. We mentioned Greg Kinnear, Renee Zellweger, John Voight. And um, talk to us about, if you would, just briefly, Ron, before our time winds up, the actor who plays Denver Moore
2: here. Well, that is Simon Hans, Hansu, who was nominated for an Oscar in Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio and also in another. He starred in Amistad and Gladiator. He was nominated another, for another Oscar and uh, in, in, uh, working or um, uh, coming to America. But uh, he was he came from Africa as a refugee landing in France and was homeless for a year on the streets of France before he was discovered by Calvin Klein to become an underwear model, very famous model back in the early 90s. And that led him to his first role in in film. But uh, he is one of the most extraordinary uh, actors ever. And we've had uh, several uh, critics who love this film said that he deserves an Oscar for his performance is my late friend Denver Moore.
1: And Jimon and Hansu certainly brings so much life to to the role and to the story and we appreciate Ron you continuing to breathe life into this story of your experiences with Denver and the way in which God um, set out in this very special mission uh, thinking that uh, I guess at a level you were going to minister to him and God had a whole other plan going on. Same kind Kind Of Different As Me, the best selling book, now a wonderful film available in the theaters, and we invite you to check it out. Same Kind of Different As me.com. Our thanks to Ron Hall, co author of this wonderful book and uh, the subject of this new film, for being with us on this segment of
0: Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: There is an idyllic formula for life, and I think we all know how generally it goes. You have school-age crushes, you fall in love around the age of 17 or so, then you're off to college by 18, you marry your high school sweetheart by 22, buy a home, raise a family, retire, you die, and someday you're buried by your surviving children. That's the idyllic formula. Of course, we know that contrary to that, life often hands us something quite different. And when that formula falls out of order, it can create a tremendous amount of pain. It can cause people to be stumbling in their relationships, both spiritual as well as with their relationships on the horizontal plane. How do you go about recovering from life when it happens out of order? Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. And Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you, Craig. Your life kind of happened out of order, in a sense. It did. Particularly so, and I think that every parent who's heard of these stories immediately gets that sort of quickening in their hearts that, oh, I never want that to happen to me, that sense that we are supposed to be buried by our children, we're not supposed to bury our children, Mm -hmm. and yet that happened to you not once but twice in a relatively short period of time and then compounded with a divorce after many, many years of marriage. How did all that impact you in terms of your viewpoint on life and your relationship to God.
3: Well, Craig, really the reason I wrote the book is to support people who go through difficult times in their life and to let them know that there, there really is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel so blessed by God to have a life that is filled with joy, regardless of the fact that I have had suffering And I wanted to share that with people and give people hope and also support people who are going through something at a particular moment that they may have read the book or be reading the book.
1: You describe your experience as feeling lonely and isolated. And it's funny because so oftentimes we'll go through the loss of a loved one. There will be a grieving process. There Mm -hmm. will be a funeral. People send cards. They send flowers. They telephone us. They send over the proverbial, the the casserole for dinner and things of this sort. They try to give us a lot of attention. And yet there's a time when that activity slows down. And then suddenly you're left with... That sense of the why questions Uh and struggling through that that tremendous sense of loss and that isolation and it's amazing that you can be surrounded by people and yet because of that experience you feel so terribly lonely and isolated
3: I I think that the the loneliness I felt was more around my my marriage than around the deaths of the children Mm. oddly enough Uh, there was a sense of loneliness even though I was married because we weren't able to really communicate in the way that I had hoped, or I think even he had hoped. and um and it was a sense of of really needing to to find a way to either communicate or to separate. And um, I, I think i I sometimes would say to myself that having to go through a divorce was almost more painful because it was really a dream that was just completely broken, and I wasn't able to live out what I had hoped. I have always believed that the children are gifts from God. I have five children, two of whom live with God in the spirit world, and three of whom I see very often, and who have grandchildren. And I feel blessed with the three that I have, and I feel blessed with the two that are with God. But they are God's. I've been Given them just for a short period of time. Have to look
1: at it from a perspective of, of the children being on loan from God. So
3: exactly, say, yeah. and that's not to say that I didn't grieve very, very deeply. When each of those children
1: pass to God. Well, you mentioned about that tremendous sense, though, of isolation and loneliness over the marriage. And it's yes. interesting because, as much as I point to uh, how we will have a grieving process, and, and culture provides for mm-hmm. uh, sympathy cards and acknowledgement yes. of the loss and things of this sort, but that really doesn't happen around a divorce, does no, it? The death it of doesn't. a marriage, you don't, no. you don't get people, don't send you cards, you don't no. get flowers.
3: I think people who have had to go through divorce really understand that no one would do that unless they absolutely had to that it's a it's a very painful thing to have to do and um i often i often think what if i didn't have to do that what if if the marriage were still there and yet it it wasn't and i have to acknowledge that it was just the way it was meant to be
1: was it important for you to come to a point in life pamela where you grieved for the loss oh, i the- grieved
3: deeply I grieved deeply even before uh, I I was separated from my, my husband because I could see it coming, I could feel it coming, and there was some way that, you know, it's like a wave. We couldn't stop it. And I'm going to cry myself to sleep because I knew that's what I was going to have to do.
1: A lot of people go through that experience, be it the loss of a loved one that's very near and dear, yes. or a marriage, and those past injuries those old wounds they continue as as untreated gaping wounds that continue to fester and oftentimes hinder our spiritual progress and certainly hamper our relationship with god and with others did you find yourself going through that what what set you on the spiritual journey that you took to sort of get reconnected with god in a deep way and to go looking for for a lot of the answers that you saw
3: Well, when Maggie died, she was four months old. I really wasn't involved in spirituality. I went to church every week, and I had a relationship with God that I think was significant. But I didn't have any awareness. I hadn't done a lot of reading or studying. It wasn't until Sean died, and Sean died when he was 16. He took his own life. But at that point, I was studying theology, and I was much more aware. I also had experienced the death of a child, so I knew I wasn't going to die uh, with Maggie, I, I didn't know if I could continue living. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it was just, the pain was so great that how does one live? You know, with that level of pain. And that
1: had been a, a difficult childbirth, as I recall. It was a book. very
3: difficult childbirth. Then you yes. went
1: through postpartum depression, which I don't know at that time did we even really understand? Did we have a name for it? At no, that time?
3: I, I I I don't think we did. Uh, I don't know. I think people did understand that there was some some sort of hormonal change that was happening that, that women who just gave birth would be sad. But with Maggie, it was the shock of having a, a C section, and 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 just I just was completely undone at her birth. She almost died at her birth.
1: That, that must have been a. Particularly painful because it was a challenging childbirth. Yes. And, and both of your lives were at risk at one point. Were they they not? were, yes. So to get through all of that and kind of have the, ah, we made it through. Right. She survived. I survived. Right. And then four months later, this huge black dark cloud rolls in on top That's of your right. life with Sudden
3: her. Sudden infant death. Her loss. Yeah.
1: That sets a lot of people into a downward spiral. That some folks unfortunately never really recover
3: from. That's right. And I do a lot of work with people who have lost children and I don't know if I could say overcome but I have regained my strength emotionally and I've spent a lot of time with the pain, feeling the pain with God and asking for healing. Do you think that's important?
1: And I ask that, Pamela, because so often our society is is Created in a fashion, or were encouraged in a fashion to try to avoid pain or anesthetize pain. People go through different things in life, and I can't handle it, so they reach to the pill bottle. They go to the booze. Maybe they begin overeating. There, there's something in there, or become a workaholic. It's something in there that distracts them from going through the pain. And I'm reminded that. Christ certainly never promised us that there would be no pain. In fact right. we're reminded in scripture that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. And so that sense maybe of the importance of learning that we are capable in him and through him
3: to go through the pain as opposed to going around it. That's exactly. And I think being a Christian, I could sit with Jesus and I could he could understand me and I could sit with Mary. I'm raised Catholic, so Mary has been always important to me in my life. She, she knows what it's like to lose a child. She doesn't does know she? what it's like to lose a child. And so she became a, a great companion for me as I grieved the death of my children. And with, with Sean particularly, I, I think I had the wisdom to understand that if I didn't feel the pain and allow myself to really experience it, that I would never be to the other side. Mm. I, w- I would have done something to anesthetize myself.
1: And it becomes a. A major stumbling block, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't go through the grieving process, if you don't in a sense legitimize the pain, sometimes we want to hide it because we don't know how to handle it, or society is telling us to buck up, hang in there. Exactly. I bet there were people that said, well, now Pamela, but you still have three other children. What about them? Yes. Is this somehow you're going to have that uh, you know, uh, slap on the forehead moment and say, oh, of course, what was I thinking? Right. People sometimes just don't really understand, do they? No, they so do in, in their effort to try and be kind, they're actually heaping more more coals upon our heads unwittingly.
3: Well, you, you said it in the beginning that uh, this losing a child for many people is their worst fear. And so they don't want to see you in pain. So, gosh, it's been a year. Aren't you okay? And it's uncomfortable for people to be with other people who are grieving, especially if you're not willing to feel your own pain. You don't want to be with people that are in pain. I have a lot of compassion for people who are grieving because i felt my pain. Not to say that there won't be another moment where, where I'll experience an aspect of my past that I need to spend time with God with because we never know when we're finished. We never know when when everything has been healed. Uh, But I, I do have compassion for people because I'm not afraid of pain. Pain has transformed me. If you've just joined us, my guest today is Pamela
1: Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: back to this edition of Lifeline joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime now Pamela you touch on a very valid point that I want to have you sort of underscore um, bold and italicize for a moment and that is that we never quite know when we're done with it all in the sense of that, that healing process and right. that grieving process. We we tend sometimes to be uh, take such a, a formula approach to this. A very close friend of mine who lost her husband two and a half, three years ago commented to me the other day that, you know, I'm really having a tough time because I'm not over it yet.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought about that statement, and I I finally said to her, I said, you know, is this something you really want to get over? You were married for, what, 45, almost 50 years? Is that something you want to get over? When you say get over, what, what do you mean? You mean forget about your marriage and three quarters of your life? Are you saying that you want to forget all of the pain? And maybe part of the problem here is that our approach to pain is to avoid it or to be anesthetized from it instead of growing through it. And it seems like what you discovered is walking through scripture, you realize that this is a process that we don't go around, but we have to go through and that we can actually grow through that pain, and that that process is not necessarily something that's instantaneous like, you know, a cup of cold water in the microwave and 30 seconds later you got boiling water, that it might be a lifetime.
3: Absolutely. I think our life is spent um, growing and maturing in our spirituality and our awareness of who we are and who God is and how we are in relationship. You know, I, I, I really think that to understand that we are God's beloved, we have to walk the path. We can't, we just don't. Uh, I don't know, there's some way, and I don't like to use the word we earn the awareness of we are God's beloved, but we certainly have to reach deep into our souls to experience that's who we are. And if we have blocks there because we haven't felt the pain or the anger or the fear, then we aren't going to get to that place of joy and wonder and acceptance of God's love.
1: Panel, the Prime is with us today. The book, When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. Part of this challenge of managing pain and grief and loss. It tends to have a bit of family legacy or history to it, doesn't it? At one point in the book, you talk about um, sort of that history of having grown up and then later on in life carrying on that sense of that, you know, we don't trust, we don't feel, we don't tell. There are a lot of families that are like that. Yes. Uh, Things that go on inside the family that might be a family secret. Uh, It can be something severe on that end or just simply a pattern in which we shut off feelings and emotions as a way of dealing with them. And, of course, we know that that ends up warping our relationships and and certainly our relationship with God. What was the turning point for you to begin to say that, you know, that, that, that legacy, so to speak, that you had been raised with and it continued on in your life of that don't trust, don't feel, don't tell? At what point did you say, we need to short circuit this?
3: I think the beginning was the death of Maggie, because I had to feel those feelings. There was no way I could get out from underneath them. But I had another experience of being in the kitchen with my papers, getting ready to teach uh, CCD, a class on Christian education, to the sixth graders. And the topic was God's love. And and I sat there looking out the window, and I thought, how am I going to teach these children about God's love? And I, and I was looking at the flowers, it was spring, and the flowers were beautiful, and I was thinking, well, one way I could teach them was would just take them out into the, the fields and the gardens and talk about the beauty of nature, and how God has given this all to us. And suddenly I had this awareness of God's love that was so overwhelming that I felt it in every cell of my body, hmm. and I went running to the Bible. At that point in my life, I don't think I didn't even have a Bible. Um, I I had one family Bible in the house, but I didn't have one that I read every day. And I grabbed this family Bible and I started pouring through it because I wanted to know who this God was that was loving me beyond anything I could possibly ever imagine. And I knew at that point that it wasn't just me, that it was everyone and everything in creation that this love was just beyond anything that I possibly had ever experienced Our before. Our eyes
1: sometimes get blinded to that, like the proverbial horse with the blinders on. We see just down that narrow yeah. tunnel of the road ahead of us and Yeah, you would think of the example that you'd say, how do we demonstrate God's love when there's so much pain in the earth and there's so much suffering? Exactly To try to explain to a young child who could, as you're talking about God is love and what we see demonstrated of God's love through the sacrifice of his son in scripture, who couldn't readily raise a hand and say, but wait a minute. How yeah. do you explain away the fact that my daddy was killed in the war, mm-hmm. or Mommy and daddy are no longer married, or you know whatever a child might bring up is the pain that they're they're dealing with, and to to be able to see that God's love transcends all of that, yes, and that he loves us through those painful experiences he
3: walks with us carries us i mean tears with us. And uh, I I think sometimes we focus so much on what's wrong that we forget about focusing on what's exquisite and on, on God.
1: Do we have to work hard? The passage in Scripture comes to mind, labor to enter into His rest. Do we have to work hard to labor into experiencing His joy? And I ask that question because some people may just want to plop themselves down in a room and say, okay, God, make it all happen. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this is a journey, isn't it?
3: It definitely is a journey.
1: You I mean, talk that, in the book about praying and fasting mm-hmm. and reading, and you even went back to school. You were studying uh, theology with the Jesuits. Yes. There's some effort at this, isn't there?
3: Well, there is an effort, but there's also, uh, there's also the experience of God causing that effort. Do you know there's some way in which I was called into prayer and called to study and called to search and... Called because the longing that I had in me that I was feeling was really God longing for me, Mm. and it was my response. And the deeper you go in, the deeper He draws you in. Uh, Well, yes, because you're because then you're available Mm. to God for those calls. So it's it's a really it's a love relationship, really, and um, I think that lover wants all of us.
1: (laughs) He does indeed, doesn't he? (laughs)
3: Yes. On this
1: edition of Lifeline, Pamela Prime is with us today. We're going to take a brief timeout, have her share some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. So Pamela, as we were talking just before the break, there is a longing of God's creation for him. And really, there's also God who longs for us. And of course, the deeper we go in that longing, the deeper he draws us in. Um, yes. There's so much we see in scripture about surrendering.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, certainly, Christ ultimately modeled that. My goodness, the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. And knowing the pain that he knew he would be facing, and yet to be able to have the stamina to say, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes. And even in that moment. Yes. Christ demonstrated to us what it means to fully surrender to God and then watch as we see that story unfold from Gethsemane to then Golgotha and eventually on that hill hung on the tree and then, of course, the good news of the resurrection on the third day, we see how God was there through all of that. Even at the moment when he utters, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. We we fully understand that, in fact, God had not forsaken him at any point. And maybe that's the big important message that, that readers can extrapolate from your book, that even though we go through these experiences, as you recount the story of losing Maggie, Sean to suicide at the age of 16, your marriage after 23 years... That God is still with us, even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. Yes. He hasn't forsaken us. And if we will reach out to Him, He will reach back to us,
3: won't He? Well... I think God is reaching out to us before we reach out to God. Yeah, that's you know, right. I think we're already <laughs> yeah. in God's this lap. This is very true, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, God is waiting for us. Although oh, no, <laughs> oh, God. God was never lost. Oh God was never lost. I remember just getting so so upset and so sad one day because we had moved and I was in a place that I had never lived before and. A neighborhood that was very foreign to me. We moved from the from the East Coast. Was this the Tennessee experience? Yeah, to yeah. Tennessee, mm-hmm. and I—that's where I really was lonely and isolated and and really depressed. Uh, so from I got the a, East
1: Coast or, or Walnut Creek on the other end, and then Tennessee—that's a culture right. shock. Right, and <laughs> yeah,
3: and so I, I was like a fish out of water, really. And I remember just plunking myself down in this chair and and just raising my eyes and and my hands and saying. God, where are you? And I heard back, I thought you'd never ask.
1: <laughs> you know? I was there so, all the time. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. exactly. And that was that was another turning point. It was, you know, these these moments where I realized, I would realize that I had this magnificent relationship, this magnificent love relationship. And, uh, you know, God was always blessed. Poking at me and and trying to wake me up to that. Those
1: peaks on the uh, the Richter scale, like exactly. an earthquake, you know, they don't happen all the time, right? But those earthquakes that sometimes can jostle us, yes, they can be upsetting, like some of the events in life can be upsetting, yeah. And yet, they can also be those those shocking moments that will awaken a sense of the spiritual in us. That's right. Drive us back toward Scripture, back toward the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, when life is going well, what do you need God for? But it's in those moments when life is shaking us like an earthquake that we suddenly now can open our eyes and, and realize that it's more about than just the pain and the loss and the grieving and the trying to figure it out. It's about allowing God to love us in and through those negative experiences, the terrible things that most of the world works very hard to try to avoid or anesthetize the pain of and experience God in the pain. Yeah. yeah. You know, Paul talked about knowing Christ in the power of the resurrection and people like to put the period right there. Boom. I like that. Boy, the resurrection. Look at that. Raised from the dead. Can't beat that. Right. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and in the fellowship of of his sufferings. And we we like that power of the resurrection part, but getting to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and realizing, as you mentioned earlier, that he knows, he can relate, he knows mm-hmm. what we're going through. Exactly. And in and through that then we can find that sense of, of peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding. Yes. Yeah, and that certainly has been your experience, hasn't it?
3: It really has been my experience and that's really why I wrote the book because I feel very blessed. I I find now, I mean I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but majority of my prayer is a prayer of gratitude mm-hmm. because of my life. I just feel deeply blessed. I have a beautiful marriage and live in a beautiful part of the world and I don't know, God is just blessing me. <laughs> Let's talk
1: about briefly the beautiful part of the world that you live in, down in in Twainheart. You and your husband um, operate just a a wonderful location there. You've had a retreat center for many, many years that I understand is now available. And boy, a family looking for a great place to get away to, or maybe um, even a religious organization that says, hey, we'd like to just get a, a, a small, neat little retreat center in the middle of the spectacular uh, California Redwoods. You're about an hour north of Yosemite. So listeners that know the Twain Heart area immediately know we're talking about a little slice of heaven here on this side. Um, you've got a beautiful piece of property there. Tell us a bit I about do. it.
3: Well, it's, uh, it's five acres. And um, when Dave and I moved there, we started to recreate it. It had fallen into great disrepair. So we rebuilt the house. Uh, Completely, really. I think there was one stick left by the time (laughs) the contractor got in and started ripping things out. Uh, And so we built a beautiful home. But then we built a tree house that's 35 feet above the ground. And uh, that was all architecturally designed and built by by a man from Maine who we brought to help us build this. And the community built it on the ground. And we lifted it up with a crane. Uh, We've had a lot of fun on the property. The property has a lake that's all spring-fed, and it has a stream that goes through it. And then we have another guest house that's on the lake, that it floats on the lake. It has a float, and uh, these buildings are yurts. We have a writer's studio, and we also have another yurt that was really our chapel. And um, we did healing circles every month. And you've done a lot of writing there on the property. I have. I, I moved there to write, and so that's where I wrote the book. So really,
1: is is the kind of environment that can allow you to get away from the madness of uh, of all the, the busyness of the big city, so yes. to speak. And and you know what better place if you're looking to reconnect with God or go deeper with God yes. than to get out there in His creation, right. Where you suddenly realize that sparrows cast shadows when the sun is in the right direction, um, and that there's other noise than the sound of passing fire engines and helicopters and the airport nearby, Mm -hmm. and really be able to kind of just bask in the glory of that creation.
3: Yes, it's beautiful. It's very peaceful. People say when they come on retreat, uh, we have three guest houses for retreats, they say, uh, this place is magical, or they say, it's so peaceful, and we've had... I think that the place has just grown in terms of its sense. You know, when you go in a church, you feel really a beautiful energy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people pray there. And many, many people have come to the property and, and prayed and meditated and done retreats. So you feel that energy on the property, aside from the fact that the trees and the water are are exquisite energetically and the birds and all the little animals that live there as beautiful as
1: a, a chapel can be it's still made by the hands of man and yet you're you're in a chapel there that is literally created by the very hand of god himself exactly can't really compete with that can no, you know you can't folks want to get more information um i'll send you to the website twobearsdancing.org. That's twobearsdancing.org. And I want to thank Pamela Prime for dropping by and sharing today. It's been great to visit with you. Thank you, Craig. More information again on the web, twobearsdancing.org.